If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to the Explorinate Podcast. Welcome back to the Explorate Podcast. I am your host, Rob, and joining me again tonight is Drexy. Welcome back, Drexy. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Oh, I knew it. I knew you'd say it. I knew. <laughs> that was, that's always the way you say it. Uh, you know, it's going well. How are things over yonder? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, pretty excited for our guest. Hope that's not a spoiler. Nope. No spoilers because we're not saying who he is yet. But welcome back, Ben. Hey, Ben. I'm pretty good, Rob. How are you doing? I'm great. In fact, I'm even better because we do have a special guest tonight. We are going to welcome Tim Bender, the CEO of Hooded Horse. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, Rob. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. And I hope you're ready for the deluge of questions that are about to occur because we have a lot of them. But if you guys don't know, Tim is the CEO of like the new upstart hooded horse publishing company that seems to be gobbling up just about every strategy game that anybody wants to play. And so we wanted to bring him on and kind of get to know him a little bit. And with that, Tim, would you mind just giving us a little bit of background on who you are? Yeah, so Hooded Horse, we're, well, like you mentioned, uh, a publisher of indie strategy games, and we've got a, a wide range of them, basically the full range of what we consider strategy, strategic RPGs, strategic simulations. So, for instance, we have a lot of traditional strategy games, like just recently released Terra Invicta, which is a grand strategy game against the Storm, which is going to be releasing, well, actually, I don't know, when, when, when this airs, it may already be released, but releasing or released on November 1st, which is a city builder. And then we have things like Capital Command that are that, that is sort of a strategic simulation where you have a giant capital ship in space that you're fighting with, but it's very slow paced. It's sort of like the capital ship battles of Battlestar Galactic, so it's more strategic. Or uh, an RPG like Sons of Valhalla that is side scrolling with base building and action elements too, but um, you know has a, a strategic bent to it. You seem to have quite an eclectic range of different games, and there aren't really very many duplicates with regards to genre. Is that a deliberate thing, Tim? Yeah, we're definitely trying to make sure that every game that we publish is, is quite unique and does something not only different than the other games that we have, but different than any other game out there. And so there's you know wonderful games like Alliance of the Sacred Sons that is a space 4x game in, in one sense, but it's quite different than, than than anything else in that regard because you're playing in a very almost life sim RPG like role of the emperor and picking what governors to appoint and such from a political perspective. So it's Space 4X, but then again, unlike virtually any other Space 4X out there. So we are definitely trying to pursue games 
that are unique and that feel different than, than other things players might have played. Right. It's kind of funny because I think at least among our community, there's just this kind of running joke where anything that Hooded Horse is coming out to publish, we're, we're all excited for because, you know, it does, you're right. You've kind of, you know, run the gamut when it comes to genres and different types of games. And I mean, there's like, a, you know, something for everyone. <laughs> there's like a grab bag of games. And depending on what kind of a strategy game you like, there's probably something in Hooded Horse's catalog that's going to fit you. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I think you and I, uh, Rob, uh, have very similar taste in games. At least uh, there's been several times where, where where we've talked and, you know, you've drawn my attention to a game and, you know, it's it's either one that we then got in touch with or one that we were already talking to. And I had to say, yeah, we're talking to them and I may have news for you soon. So we definitely have very similar taste. Yeah. So do you think it's like perfect timing or do you have some sort of secret method behind it do you have like a ai that searches the internet and predicts how well this game will do or stuff like that it's just really weird you guys popped up and all these games suddenly just appeared out of nowhere as well well yeah i'm I'm honored that you like them that much so i mean i guess there are a couple of ways of approaching that question the first one is there's probably nothing we probably couldn't get an ai to look for games because you know some games that we've signed have obviously have, have been doing very very well before we got involved and you could probably if you were watching some chart or something there's something that could be done to to figure that out and, and but many of the games that we we signed have instead you know they, they hadn't really been discovered until after we signed them so it's, it, it's been a mix and i think the central element is just that we you know myself and the other people who, who work for us we're very much strategy game fans ourselves so when we look for games we're probably fall in love with the same sort of things that you would and so we're looking at you know everywhere we can and trying to find the ones that really are the kind that we would fall in love with yeah i just want to piggyback off what Drexy's asking and ask you know what is it that drew you to the strategy game genre because like he's saying it almost feels like you know there was this like vacuum really for a strategy game publisher that would take on you know more independent games and more independent studios like you have and i'm just curious to know like what what got you here like where was the thought process in, in getting here and what made you decide to get into publishing strategy games so it's very much a case of they're the kind of games that i myself love and that therefore i understand so i think it's probably really you know in in publishing game and marketing a game if you don't love it yourself, then I think you probably aren't going to be that successful because ultimately so much of it is about seeing what's special about the game. I mean, you have this sort of like generic game marketing. If I were to sort of describe generic game marketing that you see a lot of times, it's sort of like, okay, you're presenting a game. So you say, oh, this game is like game X and game Y, or this is game you know X with this added, or some kind of comparison or some sort of attempt to appeal to people who have played a prior game and to describe the game as something that they like. And the thing about that kind of game marketing is it's not really effective. If you want to actually market a game well, you have to really love it and communicate why other people should love that game and that it's something special that goes beyond any such thing. So if you don't understand a game, I don't think you can market it very well. And therefore, it's natural that we're doing strategy games because these are the games that I understand and that I love myself and that therefore I can understand how to market and present them and how players will think in regards to them. I don't think I would be particularly effective if I were trying to market first-person shooters or something because I'm terrible at them. And that's nothing against people who who, who do like them. And there's a lot of crossover. I mean, there's, there's definitely 
a lot of fans of our games would also enjoy first-person shooters, but they're not personally my thing. So trying to market them by me would be a disaster. Well, with that being said, what kind of, well, which strategy games did you cut your teeth on growing up? Oh, wow. There's just, you know, that's uh, so, I mean, that, that, that could be a podcast episode in itself, right? So I'll, I'll just name some that I really, really enjoyed. I loved, of course, Masters of Orion 2. I actually didn't play Masters of Orion 1. I, I've always meant to go back and play that one. But number two is the one I fell in love with. Master of Magic, uh, Fantasy General from SSI. Castles 2 Siege and Conquest. That was Interplay, I think. I loved Civilization 2 scenarios. I played Civilization 1 was my first Civ, but Civilization 2 um, had some just amazing... That was the first start of, you know, having scenarios where you could play... You know, there was a mod creator called Harlan Thompson, I think it was, who created a lot of cool fantasy mods and such for it and some other people. There's a Silmarillion mod for Civilization 2 that I still play because it's the only good Silmarillion, you know, experience uh, for that, that I found out there. So yeah, I, I guess the, those games were the ones that immediately come to mind. I'm, I'm probably forgetting a ton that I'll remember after the... Oh, and I also loved, um, you know, there's these old CR Online games called The Quest for Glory. It was a series of games, which is which began my interest in RPGs, I think. So we, and part of the reason why we, we do RPGs at Hood Horse as well is it probably has something to do with the Quest for Glory games, which are these... Actually, they were really, really interesting games that I think were ahead of their time because they were a mix of Sierra Online adventure game elements, of course, they're known for with RPG mechanics, you know, stats and monsters and fights and all that. Yeah. So those are definitely some of the games that I grew up on too. So I think that's why you and I have very similar tastes in games because growing up on those, we're just constantly looking for the next one. And with that being said, I think your first like signing deal or publishing deal was made with Falling Frontier. Am I correct? Uh, Terra Invicta was actually the first one that we signed. Um, so that was uh, Falling Frontier was number three. So first was, I mean, I could probably name them in order. So Terra Invicta was number one, then Alliance of the Sacred Sons was number two, Falling Frontier was three. And at that point, I had people asking whether we were like the space game publisher. And actually, <laughs> which was, was sort of interesting. I think there was a perception there initially where we were intending to only do space games. But then number four with Old World sort of resolved that. And we were after, after that, we were no longer the space game publisher. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I was a huge Kickstarter. Like, I think I put in $250 for Terra Invicta. And so, and in fact, I know I did because my wife was really upset about that. But yeah, so I was really happy to see that the Pavonis Interactive guys were able to secure even more funding because I think they've, they've really... They've really benefited from having that extra money and that extra guidance that you guys have given too. And I'm actually curious to know what you think of the reception of Terra Invicta so far, because for me and from the outside perspective, it kind of seemed like it it started off slow, but then it just kind of really built up momentum. And I'm wondering if that's actually the case on your end. Yeah, you know, Terra Invicta definitely it it definitely did grow, as you say, uh, over the first week. That's not so unusual for strategy games, complex strategy games like that, but they basically they begin accumulating players. You know, a lot of games will peak on their first day. And then strategy games are often peaking in pl concurrent player count more around the third day or something. Terra Invicta actually peaked on the seventh day. It went up straight, you know, every day for an entire week, which is very unusual. And in general has maintained player count amazingly well. So it's, you know, on, on, on the first day, Terra Invicta peaked about 5,000 concurrent players. And then it basically peaked higher for, for and got all the way up almost to 10,000 players after seven days. And then it hovered around there. And now we're back around 
5,000 players now, a little bit dipped below that for the last couple of days when, you know, well, you know what, Victoria 3 released, which has a lot of common interests. So that dipped our player count down, you know, maybe a thousand. Uh, I think we're down to, yeah, peaking around 3,500 players instead of 5,000, but that's entirely natural. Uh, so Tim, I noticed with Terror and Victor, um, you've kind of got a game where the style of game is very familiar. It's clearly based around the concept of the original XCOM, the original UFO, but it's thrown us all a curveball with, with the way that it plays. It's completely different, really. It's, it's it, Apart from its theme, it's very, very different from anything that's kind of come before it in that kind of, that sort of style. Um, is this the kind of thing that you would like to be pushing with regards to all of your games, you know, kind of taking games that are maybe indicative of a kind of genre, but that are really pushing things in a different way. Because I think um, of all, I've played Alliance of the Sacred Sons as well, and that's also very, very different to other 4X games without a shadow of a doubt. And I think Terror and Victor really, as a a grand strategy game, it plays very, very different to any of the Paradox games I'm used to, for example. So, I mean, is this this something you're trying to encourage with the games that you're picking up, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the thing about strategy games that's really amazing and what really lends well to indie game development and smaller teams is that graphics aren't the most important thing. What's the most important thing is offering gameplay that interests players. And what interests strategy gamers most, I think, is something entirely new. In strategy games, you don't generally have anywhere, I think, just the sort of like, okay, it's time for the yearly graphical reskin of, you know, the the major series. Even when there are successful major series of strategy games, they're innovating in gameplay and changing in gameplay from edition to edition. And I think that's that's what strategy gamers most want to see. They want to see innovation. They want to try something new that they haven't before. And so when we're looking for games, we're very much looking for games that are that offers something for players to fall in love with that you don't find anywhere else that no other game offers. So that's that's very much the criteria. And and Terran Victa fit that incredibly well. I mean, and you know, I mean it's it's John, you know, the the creative director of Terran Victa, I mean he's he's a genius when it comes to game design. And so finding that kind of that kind of game that has that that is so unique, that is so different. I mean honestly that's that's probably the most fun thing about being an indie publisher. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to the point I was making, I was joking about the AI, but uh, yeah, it seems that we had like a, like Rob mentioned, we had like a big lull in games. We had the sort of resurgence of Forex about, what was it, about seven, eight years ago now. And then we had just a bunch of people making the same game over and over again. And then things kind of went quiet again. And now suddenly, like I said, you've, you've come in at a point where there's suddenly you've got a whole bunch of new developers coming in that have got some really good, unique ideas. And the games you're publishing are just literally I've wish list every single game that you haven't had. And I pretty much own every game do have at the moment. So, <laughs> yeah. It's been amazing to get the chance to, to work with them. And I guess, you know, the, the next question probably the, the, that you're, you know, I think this is actually, this is an, I give an incomplete answer to Rob before because I was uh, about how we were able to, to, to find and sign these games. And I think I just mentioned a little bit of how we find and identify them, but in terms of being able to bring them together and be able to work with so many great developers, I think another part of it is that, you know, the, uh, it's probably no secret or surprise to most gamers that most publishers don't offer the best or fairest deal to indie developers. We've tried to, 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 to buck that trend and, you know, offer fair deals to developers. And I think that's been critical as well. And I've tried to, uh, 
you know, in very in a couple of interviews with industry outlets and stuff, tried to sort of like stress that the you know various things like you know the standard deals that developers get involve you know recoup terms where they don't receive any of the revenue initially until after the publisher has made back all of the money uh, that the, the publishers put in. Only then the developer starts to see money. We don't have those kind of terms. Our developers always are receiving sales revenue from the beginning. And so various things like that, um, I think basically treating developers fairly and trying to set up deals that work well for them uh, has been critical. And I think also is helpful in the long-term success of the games too, because if you think about things like recoup terms, they pull cash flow away from the developers in that critical post-release period. So a lot of games that get you know abandoned and aren't supported or expanded like players want, part of the reason is often that the developer just didn't have the funds to do it. Um, they weren't receiving any of the sales of the game. They weren't looking at receiving it for a long time. It's the only way they could survive is to move on to a new game. And by not having those kind of terms, you know, I think everyone ends up better off. The, the developer, of course, because they get the share of the revenue they need to, to survive and pay their staff, not to lay people off and such. The players who get a game that's better support and expanded, and then we end up better off too as a publisher, I think, in the end, because you know a game that's supported and expanded well and has a happy developer that wants to keep working on it is going to sell a lot more in the long term. Yeah, because I, I have been wondering uh, recently, why is it that all these, like, for example, Old World was uh, Soren Johnson, who's a very well-known developer from the Civ games, but is it because he couldn't get a good enough deal and you guys had just offered him a really good deal or other publishing companies sort of stuck in sort of old ways of working where you guys are coming, a new fresh company and you're just more agile and able to offer these developers something older publishers aren't able to. So, I mean, I, I think Old World has Old World has sort of a complicated background to it. So, it originally had a publisher called Starbreeze, and there was, you know, I mean, if you go to the Wikipedia page, you can read about the financial difficulties Starbreeze went through. But it ended up leading to the developers, you know, Soren's company, Mohawk Games, getting the rights back for the game from the publishing for for the publishing the game. So basically. Uh, it was first published, then it was self-published, and then basically we ended up getting a chance to, which I'm very grateful for that chance, to uh, sign on to publish it shortly before the Steam release, so to, to, to help with bringing it to Steam and such. So I was thrilled to get that chance to work with them in that way. I would say a lot of it is that we, we, we offer fair deals. I think a lot of it is, um, you know, if I were to go on to other elements, I think that it makes sense to developers to join, you know, if, if they're a strategy game developer, to be part of uh, being published by a strategy game publisher. Because, of course, our, there's cross-marketing between the games that we do. The communities are similar. We, you know, the develop, developers talk to each other. You know, the various developers we're publishing have active dialogues about things. It just, it, it, there's probably a, a draw to that as well. And, and also that our whole organization is sort of geared towards this kind of marketing. It's what I mentioned before about, I think that to really market effectively a game, uh, you have to really understand that genre and you have to really love the game and understand what there is to love and understand players' perspective in that. And it's very hard for, I think, a publisher to understand that generally, which is why it's a little odd, but most indie publishers are general. But then I, I think that that is an advantage that we're focused on one area that we really understand. And when we recruit people, we focus on recruiting people that really understand that area um, as well. And I think that that helps a lot. I think developers uh, see that. Yeah, to that end, I actually have two points. And first of all, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up the fact that you, you seem to be bringing on people that have like very, very strong strategy backgrounds in, inside your like influencer, you know, relations and your 
public relations in general. Like I, I know Joe, who was like the big guy from. I guess he was like the main strategy editor over at uh, PC Games N. And then you have you brought on Havoc for your influencer relations and stuff like that. You 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 basically have kind of assembled this like dream team really of people who are just like super passionate about strategy games and are now working for you. So I think that definitely would lead, you know, lend a lot of credence to who you are as a publisher and also, you know, to bring in these newer or maybe even these like more reticent indie developers to let you actually publish them. Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, Joe's amazing and Havoc and then there's uh, Cormac and and Barely Tactical and such. And, you know, just like it, it's sort of a happy group of strategy game fans. And then people behind the scenes that, you know, you don't uh, hear from as much as external facing, but basically they're all strategy game fans. You know, my, uh, my wife, um, Snow, is uh, who's our CFO and uh, general counsel, and she's just a huge strategy game fan. And she's actually, you know, been a lot and involved in finding games. So, for instance, Falling Frontier was a game that she fell in love with and 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 uh, put to our attention. So, bringing out basically all of us being what we are, which is that everyone's sort of a happy strategy game fan over here. I think it is is definitely helpful. It also makes it fun for us all to talk because we, you know, talk in our Slack and such about various strategy games and get excited about them together. And it's just we're very much of of, of one mind. On all that yeah and to kind of further the point that Drexy was making too and, and your your point as well i mean the guy i guess the case in point for whatever you're doing is working is that i know for the longest time arkin games was never really somebody who would have ever looked at publishers and you know i, I chris mcgilligate park I've, I've always had a really good relationship with him he's a really good dude he's always been a, a, an amazing pleasure to have here on the show and you know in any conversations i've had with him i've just really enjoyed kind of picking his brain and you know somehow you managed to convince him with whatever terms it is you guys do and I think that's great because, you know, first of all, the the new game, Heart of the Machine, I think it's called, looks fantastic. So I'm just really excited to see Chris being able to kind of branch out and, and try new things again. But also, you know, like I said, it just it must be whatever it is you're doing, whatever terms, whatever it is, the, the, like the maybe the atmosphere, the environment, or maybe just how you talk is working because there are people that I just don't think ever would have come to a publisher, ever would have been really willing to sign with publishers that are signing with you. And that speaks to whatever you're doing. And also, it really, I mean, for us as fans, it really excites us because now we're going to start to see projects that may have never had the publishing or the maybe the funding or the backing that they needed to get off the ground. And, you know, I think that's going to really open things up. And, and in a way, it's going to be cyclical for you because you're going to be able to provide that that foundation and that security network for some of these independent developers that are going to be trying new things and maybe pushing genres forward in some ways like Terra Invicta does. And hell, Heart of the Machine sounds really wild too. And Manor Lords, I mean, that looks like a really awesome, I mean, I mean the demo was fantastic. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see where you guys go from here because it just seems like you have have already quickly established yourself as you know the new microprose. I think that's what we've always said here on this on the podcast and within the community is like the old old microprose of the '90s when you know they were picking up like Simtex games and they were pushing the genre boundaries. Then I feel like Coded Horse has become that new seat there, that that vacuum that was missing ever since the old microprose left. I really appreciate you saying that, Rob. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about how it's been going. I mean, we, we've definitely, it's especially recently, there's been a lot of new games and we're up to 17 games right now. And, you know, I mean, I think the one thing we're doing, which sometimes in the short term, you know, we, we hear upset comments about, but we're making sure that we don't rush anything out and that the developers always 
know that they can take as long as they need with their games and they have whatever support is necessary there because that's, I think, going to be the key. That, I mean, that's ultimately, I think, in large part, the key to, to games ending up to where they you know live up to the expectations of consumers is that the developers are in control of the timeline and are making the decisions about when to release rather than a publisher forcing things out the door. I hope we're going to live up to those expectations. And I think I think we will because the developers are all amazing. Would you say that on the kind of back end of things on your side, that you're also sort of building a community of developers too, because we can certainly feel the energy of what's coming from your, you know, from the games that you're publishing and you've picked up some really impressive stuff. We've interviewed quite a few of the people who've made the games, you know, that you're publishing. Like we spoke to Lee from uh, Fragile Existence and Rob and Drexy, I think, interviewed the guys from Terror Invicta. We've, we've basically spoke to quite a few people and we talked to Soren and all that. So, I mean, do you think you're kind of, you're trying to engender a kind of community thing going on? And do, you, do the developers speak to one another? And, you know, is there kind of like a back end thing going on as well as what we're sort of experiencing with regards to the games that are coming, you know, our way too? Yeah, I mean, in our Slack, um, it's we've got channels for the developers of all the different studios to talk to each other. A couple of them for different topics, and they're you know they, they have all sorts of conversations about programming that I don't understand and such. You know, that's the nice thing about strategy game fans, and you know why why I think maybe that I get along so well when I talk to when I talk to them, and they get along so well with each other, and all of us in the company get along so well is that we're all just really you know like I, I don't know I think strategy game fans we just naturally get along with each other and want to talk. That's a really talented pool of people. Um, Rob's just reminding me, we also, we spoke to Todd from Falling Frontier and Steve from Alliance of the Sacred Sons as well. I think there's there's likely others as well. So, I mean, really, you've got a real talent pool there to kind of to kind of come up with some, you know, really, really interesting ideas. And yeah, I, I, I'm quite, a, quite excited by the thought of that, you know, even, even if that's not necessarily a thing of how it's working in my own head, the idea that you've got so many talented people, you know, all kind of under the same publisher, um, you know, maybe gelling ideas because I was getting a bit bored of 4X and I was kind of getting a bit bored of strategy gaming to be honest because i felt that the games that were being pushed our way were very they were kind of all cut from the same mold so to speak and i think that you're not the only publisher who's doing this but i think you are certainly the one that's mostly in our scope at the moment that's really kind of trying to push different games i'm glad that it appears that way from the outside as well because it, it, it's you know that is our goal to to sort of find a be a good sort of home for in terms of publishing for just great strategy game developers and for strategy game fans to find what they're looking for and to try to publish those most exciting games that we can find i mean that the nice thing about being an indie game publisher is that our games you know i mean if you know the nice thing about publishing indie games from smaller studios is that the games don't have to make you know 50 million dollars in in the first year or something to, to be economically viable so many different innovative ideas can be explored and you can cover risky ground and you can try new things out and you can do all this because the truth is if you're if you're trying something interesting and you know you've got you know and the marketing's where it should be and you give the game time to be what it should be then it will find enough of a market to do well enough um, for an indie development team that they feel it's a great success and that is really all that's needed to allow the kind of experimentation from which great ideas come. And, you know, I mean, we talked about Terra Invicta earlier. It's it's a weird game, right? I mean, this is not, this is a game that's different than anything else out there. If, you know, it, there's probably too much in the, the game industry of looking for tested ideas and games like another game that were successful. So, you know, for sure, everyone's going to like it. You know, what if you're really going to find something that excites people, you've got to be willing to, to, to try something different and, and see if it works. I think it's right to say that a lot of the games so far you've picked up pretty have already had quite a lot of development with them before you've actually picked them up. Would you 
possibly consider someone who's just got a really good idea and they come approach you with that idea would you sort of are you able to like come in sort of at the ground level and maybe build up that idea with the person yeah absolutely and the uh a good example of that would probably be the one that Rob mentioned uh, in terms of Arkin Games. Chris of Arkin Games is someone I've been a huge fan of from his prior work, AI War II, The Last Federation. I really wanted to work with them. So basically, the conversation with him, that's from the beginning. You know, basically, the Heart of the Machine game is a game that was born out of the desire for us to work together. And, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's all Chris's idea, to be clear, but it's something that, you know, an idea he came up with in a direction he took for with the idea of us working together on it from the beginning. I think realistically that there's sort of, you know, and this is to talk very transparently about how it works, there's sort of a sliding scale between how experienced the developer is and how early a project is that you can consider at. Because we don't want to, you know, there, there's a ton of, there's a lot of great ideas going around, but execution is very difficult. Getting that idea to live up to what it's meant to be is very difficult. And so we don't want to ever be in a position where we've hyped people up for a game that comes out and disappoints them. I remember being disappointed by games I've played since, you know, for, for decades as a player. I've been disappointed when a game comes out and it doesn't, it's, it's not what I was hoping for. And so in order to avoid doing that, in order to make sure that, you know, things are the kind of, that they come out and they meet the expectations of players, the two factors are how experienced is the developer, how, you know, long and great a record do they have. And then on the other part of it is how far along the game is. Because if a developer is entirely new, but they've got something really great to show for it. And that, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that game's like playable and ready to put out there because most of the games that we've signed haven't been that rarely are they at all ready to be played by a consumer, but rather you can see under the hood there in Unity, uh, you know, in the in the game engine, or you can see that the game is shaping up. And that will then show you this is going to be a game that's really going to excite people. But when it comes to what's called uh, paper pitches, you know, just the idea of like, this is just an idea, it doesn't exist anywhere, even partially programmed. That's something that we would usually be able to consider from very, very experienced developers. So Tim, on the flip side of that question would be, you know, I'm curious to know if there's been any sort of backlash or negative feedback regarding, you know, the times that you've picked up games that have already been kickstarted. So, you know, a lot of times people invest in a Kickstarter because they want to help see a game get funded and published on their own. And then, you know, for you, I mean, I, I personally am I'm all for it, but like I can imagine that there might be some yeah, like I said, some maybe negative reception to the idea of you coming in and then publishing these Kickstarter games like Terra Invicta and uh, Fata Deum and stuff like that. Like, so I'm, I'm, have you have you had any of that? Has has anybody come back and said, "Oh my God, like why are, why are these games getting published now that we've you know kickstarted? We put all this money in, and and how does that actually work out? I mean, now that they've been kickstarted, has that helped it? You know, kind of has that kind of helped you figure out a better way of marketing these things, or do you feel like that's you know a safer bet? There's a lot of elements to that question that are interesting. The first one I'll, I'll say is that so Terra Invicta of the games is a weird example because we were we were publisher already before the Kickstarter, so we were helping to orchestrate and and run the Kickstarter campaign from the beginning, and were and the Kickstarter campaign was very direct in, in communicating that there is a publisher and that this is just about additional funds to add some things to the game. That one was sort of we were involved from from the time of the Kickstarter. There was also Alliance of the Sacred Sons that had a Kickstarter ongoing at the time that we signed on as publisher. And basically, in communication with, with, with the developer, basically, the developer decided to pull the Kickstarter before it was over and offer everyone who had backed so far beta access to like test out the game early and everything. 
And that was partially based on just the mechanics of managing Kickstarters and the like. And then there's been games that, you know, you mentioned Fata Dam, The Way of Wrath is another one, Xenonauts 2, one of our most recent ones, maybe the most recent one, actually. They all had pre-existing Kickstarters. There, I think the community has always been supportive and excited about us uh, coming on board. I mean, the thing is, people who back Kickstarters of these games are sort of like the power users, if you will. You know, they're, they're the people most likely to be interested in a lot of the games, following news a lot of the games. So when they hear news that, you know, we've become involved as publisher, um, a lot of times the comments that they leave are, oh, well, it's, it, it, it's you know, it's hooded horse. Great. You know, I, I, I bought these other games from them and I wish this the other games from them. And that makes sense. And it sounds great to them. Um, so I think we haven't really faced any uh, backlash there. I think a lot of Kickstarters uh, backers and a lot of players in general um, have become more aware of how much it costs to make a game. So they, I think they're all kind of aware that, you know, even Kickstarters, I mean, a Kickstarter that goes to, you know, $50,000 is not even going to come close to funding a game. And then, and if a Kickstarter even, it goes really well and goes to two hundred or $300,000, they also know that's not going to fund the game usually. So there's a certain amount of awareness that additional funding is helpful and that the game will be better. Players are basically savvy at this point, and they realize that the long-term support and expansion of the game, which strategy gamers always look for, is better the better the release goes. So anything that makes the release better means that that project they backed on Kickstarter is going to end up better over the coming years. So I think that, that that's that's why, you know, and I'm very grateful that the community has been sort of supportive when we uh, get involved. Tim, I'm interested to know, have you had any games where you've kind of like backed them and then you've backed out or, you know, they've not come to fruition in some way and we've just not heard about them? No, that hasn't happened to us. The, you know, I mean, it's uh, when we get involved, we're pretty convinced about the developer and what they're going to deliver. And, you know, so even, even when it's relatively early, there's a lot of belief in the developers when, when we get involved based on getting to know them. I mean, we have lots of conversations. We look in the game, what's going on. We do a lot of research. So I'm, you know, I mean, just the law of averages, things go on long enough. I'm going to make mistakes. But so far, all of them have been just, you know, we've just been thrilled that we've become involved and developers continually amaze us with how dedicated they are and how great a job they're doing. So we haven't, we haven't had that situation yet. And I think often, you know, well, we have, there was one game and I, I don't want to say which one, but that had a publisher before us, but it was under some kind of a secret arrangement or something where the publisher would get to announce it, not the developer. And the publisher never did announce that one. Um, and they backed out of it because uh, the marketing wasn't going the way they hoped. And that honestly was entirely their fault. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. But a, a lot of publishers have this sort of weirdly, weirdly disconnected kind of games, you know, will succeed or not. They never know what's going to happen. Wait and see what happens. Um, attitude about things when really, hey, what's the use of a publisher if not to make the marketing succeed on the game? So um, I'm very glad we signed that one because when we got involved, you know, it started doing ama amazing because it's an amazing game. It just needed someone to back the marketing like it should. And in general, I, I think we would never, we're never going to give up on a game when it comes to marketing. And a lot of, and you know, one of the unfortunate things about indie publishing is a lot of indie publishers have the attitude of let's look at what does best in our portfolio and invest all of our resources into that game because that's the most popular one and we'll get the highest return on investment or something like that. 
is behind their decisions. And it leads to you know the, the the pattern where if you look at their Steam publisher page and you start scanning through their released games and you count and you see the number of reviews on them because the number of reviews is an indication of how many people bought the game at that point in time. You'll see it's like you know low reviews, low reviews, low reviews, very very high reviews, low reviews, low reviews, low reviews, very high reviews. Basically, you know some minority of the uh, portfolio they have hits it really big, and the rest just sort of don't get much. Uh, sales and don't get much support or effort um, either. And we're definitely trying to avoid that and make sure that every game that we sign on to publish, we give the full possible efforts to to promote it and get out there. And that works well for us too, because the truth is, it's kind of a false assumption. This idea that you know some publishers have that games either work or they don't, and you don't really know beforehand. No, I mean if there's something to love about the game and you're marketing it, and the marketing is not working well, then guess what you reevaluate your marketing and find a way to communicate that. I mean, I think a lot of games that fail, it, it, it's the fault of the marketing, not the fault of the developers. Tim, now that you guys have grown a bit and you've brought on more people and you know you actually have somewhat of a company now, I'm curious to know, are you still the one that's out there like searching for games or do you have like a headhunter now that's going out there or are you as a collective group at Hooded Horse always kind of just looking for the next one? It's that last one you mentioned. Basically, we're all there looking at games, watching news, sharing them. We've got you know channels for this and such, and and exploring them um, together. You know, I mean, I'm I'm still taking the lead in terms of the, the the process of evaluating games and talking to developers and such. I think it's just one of the most critical things that we can do. So I, but yeah, we're 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 all sort of collectively at keeping our eyes open and looking for what's out there. How big? does Hooded Horse get then? That's a question I'm kind of interested in because you're expanding quite fast, in my opinion. Have you got kind of an idea of how big you want to be? How many games you want to be publishing? Yeah, we probably the rate at which we're going to publish games next year is about our rate. And that is to say, we're usually going to publish around, release around 10 new games a year. Um, That's our current thinking on that. I'm not saying that won't change or be reevaluated in some way because it very well could, but that's our current uh, thinking. We do have potentially the ability to sign a couple more games for 2023. So we're, we're looking at some that might be 2023 as well. We've got, a, we've got the ability to potentially sign a couple more, but we're looking towards 2024 as well now. We're near the level at which I want to be in terms of our rate of publishing games. Oh man, now I just want to, I mean, like, I want to just like dive into your head, Tim, and know what it is you're looking at now. Cause you, I mean, there just, there's a little room there. I feel like there's gotta be something you're eyeing and, and possibly considering publishing. And I just, I just want to know, I just want to know, Tim. That, you know, honestly, we don't, there, there's nothing unannounced right now that I'm waiting to announce, just keeping my eyes open. So, so, and you know, maybe, maybe this would be different if we were talking in like a couple of weeks or a month and I'll have found the additional thing or something, but yeah, we're just keeping our eyes open at this point. Point and uh, which which makes sense. I mean, basically, we'll we'll possibly sign a couple new games um, for 2023, and then and then 2024 is wide open. But yeah, there, there's actually just to disappoint you. Sorry, Rob. I, I <laughs> we don't have anything unannounced right now that's on the queue to be announced or anything like that. We're just keeping our eyes open and, and looking around for those games. I do the same kind of scouring you do. I think. I mean, probably not 
on the same level, but pretty much close to it. And there aren't any games that I've seen that aren't being published that are like truly just, you know, breathtaking just yet. So I, I feel like I'll know the game that you pick up next because I'll be probably looking at it too. Yeah, I mean, I that would not surprise me at all. I mean, that's happened several times to us, right? <laughs> like over Discord, we'll find out. You'll you'll discover I'm in the Discord of some game that you're about to chat with me about, <laughs> like that. It has happened a few times. I'm a little behind the scenes. There's been a few times where I've been like, "Hey, Tim, there's this game," and he's like, "I'm already on it," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah," or vice versa, where I've actually been able to show you a game that you didn't know about. So yeah, that that definitely happened a couple of times, and and that's one of the reasons you're one of my favorite people. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate. It that yeah there's been plenty of times i've joined the discord thinking yes i've discovered the game before rob and rob's already in there i'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> so yeah do you have a roadmap of your upcoming games and can you give us a list yeah we in, internally we have some estimations but the thing is that if we were to have a definite release and one of the advantages of being as as flexible as we are, as indie as we are, is that we don't have to hit any financial projections. There's no pressure like, oh, got to release this game before Christmas because we've got to make the shareholders happy, or let's rush this one out because we've got to make this much money by this time. Uh, we're able to be entirely flexible because there's just no rush. And the developers, you know, we, we make sure that they know that this is our perspective as well, that the important thing is when the game's ready. And the truth is, is, you know, odd as it idea as it is for, for players sometimes to realize, it's incredibly difficult for developers to know when a game's going to release. Basically, it's very hard to predict the development process. There's, especially with strategy games, late game balancing and AI, uh, refining certain things. I mean, these are things that can take months and months and months, and you're not even sure when they're going to finish. And so as a consequence, we have some vague internal estimates. And we have some ideas for some of the games that are closer that are getting a little bit more definite. But the truth is, we don't really know uh, that a game's going to release until a couple months or a month before it releases or so. And that's basically when we're going to announce the release date. We try to announce things when we know it. Don't have a lot of definite knowledge outside of that because, you know, even when we think something might happen, it's often the case, very often the case, stock developer. And, you know, they tell you, actually, it would be better if we had a couple, we could release now, but if we have a couple extra months, and then it's better to give the time. The, the truth is, we've all been disappointed by strategy games that get pushed out before they're ready. So it's kind of frustrating. I get, you know, we see a lot of comments in the Steam forum where people are frustrated, we can't tell them more about release dates. But the truth is, it's it's kind of an either or. Do you, you want definite estimates in the past that, that, that are reliable and will get stuck to, or the game to be really good when it comes out? And you basically get one or the other. And speaking of this, which one is coming out next? So as of this moment in time when we record, uh, it's Against the Storm, uh, which is November 1st. Um, it's a rogue uh, light city builder set in a dark fantasy world. And the roguelite term there, you know, is referring to the fact that basically you construct repeated cities to gather resources and to trade with each other and such. And uh, it's, it, it's now when this actually airs, um, it may be after uh, and already out. And so I'll just I'll boldly predict that it's going to do very well. And I think it's going to be well-received by players and well-reviewed. And, and we'll see if I'm right. 
Well, this is one we actually did a podcast on. I don't know if you heard it, but we we all liked it. And uh, it's not even my kind of genre, to be honest. I I quite like city builders um, and I'm not really sold on the anthropomorphic thing personally. However, I really liked that one. I thought it was a really good game. And I think that the even the the, you know, the animal characters actually fit in quite, quite well within the vibe of the way that it was kind of constructed and the, the world building. And I was talking to Daz Tactic. And Daz said the same thing because he also he's got kind of he's also a little bit like kind of funny about anthropomorphic animal characters like I am. But he also said that he really enjoyed that one. So you've done something right there. I think it's really cool. Uh, thank you. I mean, what I did right is trusting a great development team. They're they're Aramite Games. They're just amazing developers. And um, yeah, they, they've created something special there. Against the Storm is just a really fascinating strategy game, and we, we it, it's it's it, it really is. So I'm really excited about it. Thank you. Right. So before we we kind of start to wrap things up, I'm actually really genuinely curious why the name Hooded Horse. Well, that, that that that's a question that has a couple of answers. So I could tell the more interesting answer, the less interesting. I guess I'll start with the less interesting one. See how many people we scare off of listening. So the .com domain name was open. It had little competition in Google search, and it, it has alliteration, which makes it easier for people to remember. Hooded horse, you know, both starting with the H. Um, it has an animal in the name, which makes it easier to visualize and ties in well with a logo. So that's kind of the boring answer to it. The more interesting answer, which is also just as true, both both were involved, is that um, you know my own background before I got involved in the games industry in a professional sense was creating a mod for a um, a, a Viking themed game. Um, it was so I created a mod for the Viking Conquest DLC for the game Mountain Blade Warband and. You know, um, originally it was intended to be a very short mod. I just did a couple of things to balance things out. And so I called it VC balance mod or Viking Conquest balance mod. But then I just went like 13 versions and used way too much time in my life creating change logs that went for like 20 pages and, you know, for each version and such. So I really like the Viking Age quite a lot. And the, and so, you know, and modding that made me even more into Viking Age history. And then basically, when I was looking at namings, I was looking at the history of Norse kennings, as, as they're called. So basically, it's a combination of words to mean something else. So the, the word hooded horse basically originates, and here's the long history of it. So Yggdrasil, the world tree in Norse mythology, the first part, Ig, which means terrible, is a stand-in for Odin. And then the last part, Drasil, is the word for horse. So Yggdrasil, the world tree's name, is basically Odin's horse. And it's referring to a story where in order to learn uh, the magic of the runes, Odin hung himself from, from the tree and then stabbed himself with a spear and such. And, the, and because of that, um, so basically Odin's horse, by the, the idea of horse there, relates to the idea of a gallows. So it's basically Yggdrasil, the world tree, sort of the name is indicating the idea of a gallows where people are hung uh, or are hanged, that is. So, so basically that word, Yggdrasil, basically what I did is I swapped things out. So I kept the horse for the second part. And then I went to another, because Odin is also, in addition to being called the terrible, is also sometimes, you know, called the masked one or the hooded one. So I took the hooded word there and have hooded horse. So it's basically hooded horse is sort of like a badly constructed kenning. I recognize it's badly constructed uh, for uh, Yggdrasil, the world tree. Um, so at some point I considered having a tree as part of the logo, but then it became too busy. So that's uh, that fell out. 
Really quick, I just I've always wanted the, the horse to have a hood. I just want to put a hood on the horse, like a like a freaking hood on the horse. Like I know I get it now. I totally understand. We're, like now, this actually makes more sense to me. But every time I've seen your logo, I just want to draw a little hood on it. Yeah, I've I've i thought yeah, I've thought about logo revisions and such, and it's 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 never really risen to the forefront. And I very much like the overall way the current one is done. It's sort of, and this is what we requested in the design, inspired by the cave paintings in the south of France that were discovered from from prehistoric times. But I think it could, it's sort of difficult to convey the idea of that hood, right? Because, you know, the idea of the hood of a horse is that sort of mask that's put on the the horse's face. And at the level of abstraction, the logo is, it's, it's, it's already sort of got it indicated a little bit with the lines, but it's, it, you're right, it's not very clear. So if eventually an artist has a great idea for conveying that hood idea, you know, uh, more clearly, I think it would be an improvement. I actually like the uh, the logo how as it is. I'm interested though, Tim, because you've you've mentioned mythology and you're talking about you know you're talking about Norse mythology and you mentioned the Silmarillion as well, saying that you know that the the Civ two mod was the only Silmarillion game, which is really interesting to me. I didn't even know that that existed. Are you a Tolkien fan then? Because I'm 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 going through a bit of a Tolkien renaissance at the moment and just rereading the Lord of the Rings for about the thirtieth time or something. <laughs> and so I was, my ears kind of pricked up at that, and I, I thought I bet this guy's a big Tolkien fan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if anyone's interested in digging up that scenario, it's just search for the Degger Bragalak Civ 2 scenario. So it's specifically of the Battle of the Sudden Flame, where, you know, the elves had encircled um, Angband and Morgoth was under siege for a long time. And then he burst out with, um, you know, thousands of Balrogs and dragons and orcs, because this was back in Tolkien's earlier conception, where he conceived of Balrogs as being quite numerous. And the various elf lords would, you know, slay Balrogs left and right, basically. It's quite an, I- impressive as a scenario, because basically what makes it so impressive, and here I'm just going to rave about it, because honestly, it's one of my favorite for, um, experiences in, 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 Civ, uh, in Civ, even though it's this ancient Civ II scenario. What makes it so attractive and so interesting is that you're in the position that the, you know, this is where you had the sons of Fionor and the Noldor, you know, under Fingolf and the High King, it's sort of breaking apart into two groups and such. And were managing different parts of the siege, and then they'd been successful for so long, and then suddenly, just like I mentioned, you know, hundreds or thousands about hundreds, maybe or thousands—I don't know how many Balrogs come out, and just dozens of dragons, and you know, endless orcs, and all of this, and it's just all of a sudden it comes out and overwhelms all the defenses, and then, of course, in in, in the Silmarillion, the elves get beaten back and basically lose more and more ground, and Fingolf and the High King rides to Angman and challenges Morgoth to personal combat and ends up losing, but injuring Morgoth in the process in this heroic battle. And basically the elves lose soundly and uh, it takes the Valar, the gods coming in to intervene to drive Morgoth back. But basically in this scenario, you have the chance to take the role of the the elves, either the Noldor or the sons of Fionor, and try to change that to where you actually are able to resist the siege and, you know, and, and maintain the siege and, and drive Morgoth's forces back and avoid that way in which things ended up. So it's it's an incredibly difficult scenario in which you in which victory isn't assumed. So you don't have to feel bad if you do badly because that's actually what happened and what's supposed to happen. But if you do really well, you feel really good. And it has this interesting strategic element of the sort of fighting retreat against this overwhelming force and then trying to turn things around, which ends up creating just an enormous amount of interesting challenges. And I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for the idea of like going into established scenario, having overwhelming enemy force and just seeing how well you can you do against it. And so 
that satisfies that that drive for me. So I, I just really love that scenario. So if anyone's interested, just Google Digger Bragalax Civ 2 scenario, and you will be able to find actually even the original website of the guy who created it, and which has all sorts of you know interesting things and outlines the various Elf Lord units and stuff. And you know, I'm from from also from a perspective of modding, it's very interesting because this is way back at the beginning and they didn't have a lot of tools to work with the Civ 2. And it's amazing the innovation that they did for various elements of the game. Like there's the hidden city of Gondolin, which of course had all of its forces held there and, you know, sort of hidden and didn't participate in most of the battle in, in the Smarillion, but there's a random chance they may join and participate. And just the details of how they have to work within the Civ 2 limitations in order to create those kind of mechanics is just really interesting from a modding perspective as well. Oh, I've got a big smile on my face now because you clearly know your stuff when it comes to Tolkien. And also, you're speaking about this scenario. It kind of reminds me a little bit of playing the Russians in War of the uh, War in the East, in uh, Gary Grigsby's War in the East, where you are essentially on the back foot, you know, for very much for the first part of the game. And you can be defeated, you know, if you don't play well enough. And it's kind of like just sort of seeing how, how well you can do. Or perhaps Total War Attila, you know, is another game where you really are fighting like an overwhelming force. And, and it's really just seeing about how, how much you can kind of salvage, really. Yeah, that's just, I think it's just, it's such a fun thing to do in strategy games. Um, that that being at that that level, rather than, you know, just starting and every time always being, you know, sort of like the, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the problem with Forex games, as much as I love them, is that you play them really well. And then anytime you fight anyone, you're overwhelmingly dominant. <laughs> and, you know, you've just sort of turtled up long enough, teched up or built up your military, and then it's time to go crush them. And it, it's nice getting into an established scenario where you are the underdog and seeing what you can do with it. I want to see more scenarios in 4X games as well. I've been enjoying uh, Imperium's Greek Wars with the uh, historical scenarios that Pavel's been putting into those. And um, it's really given me a new outlook on quite how uh, how much a sort of a pre-established set game setting and map and narrative can actually change the experience of a 4X game in a big way. Yeah, I, I, I love established scenarios. Um, it's uh, it, it just you throw you into an interesting, interesting situation. It's just it, it, it's my favorite way to play them. Well, Tim, I got to hand it to you. I, I was, I went into this and I, I'd already liked you a bit and I was, you know, I already liked what you were doing, but you managed to, like Ben said, kind of win me over there. Like, there, I, I was also smiling, listening to your recollection of, of Lord of the Rings history and uh, Tolkien history. And I, I, I really appreciated that. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, sir, I just really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, my, my best wishes for you and everything that you are, you know, your continued endeavors to bring new and interesting strategy games to the market. And honestly, just for everything you're doing. So thanks, Tim. Really, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. I had a wonderful time. Thank you all for having me here to speak with you. Yeah, it was great fun, Tim. Thanks. It was an awesome interview and come back anytime. All right. Well, this was Rob, Ben, Drexy, and Tim for Explominate. Until next time, keep exploring.